Hello, everybody. Welcome back to our uh, Clearing the Plains book club. We're doing uh, chapter six now. Um, our second episode on chapter six. We're specifically talking about the Red River resistance today. Um, it's an important part of the Clearing the Plains story. James Daszak doesn't spend a lot of time talking about it in the book, but it happens during the events of chapter six. And it seems like apart from a devastating smallpox epidemic, all the themes involved in the process of clearing the plains uh, are on display in the events of the Red River Resistance. And it, uh, it has lessons that still apply to us now in 2022, uh, especially if you live in Canada and especially if you live on the plains and especially if you live in Manitoba. It's a bit of a set piece, so it's worth diving uh, more into. The last episode, I gave a, a bit of background to what was happening in the Red River and and what the context was leading up to the Red River resistance. Now we're going to talk about the resistance itself. And I guess right off the bat, why do we say Red River resistance? When I was growing up, it was Red River rebellion. So what's the difference between uh, resistance and rebellion? Well, a resistance, you can think of it as uh, organized action by local inhabitants against uh, an invading foreign entity, uh, whereas a, a rebellion is organized action uh, against an already existing authority. The word that you choose to describe this is uh, makes a difference in how you understand uh, the role of the Red River resist resistance in history. It's sort of the reason why the Battle of Seven Oaks uh, we call it the Battle of Seven Oaks now, rather than when I was growing up, we learned it as the, the Seven Oaks Massacre. These uh, these words are important because it really shapes how you uh, interact with and, un and understand this history. Uh, who names these events is another question. Who, who gets to tell the story? Whose perspective are we looking at? So during the time of the events in Red River in 1869 and 1870, the Canadian state hadn't yet officially established control over the territory, uh, and the authority of Canada hadn't been uh, recognized by the inhabitants in the first place. So that's why we call it a resistance and not a rebellion. As Howard Adams writes in Prison of Grass, Ottawa's plan to annex Rupert's land gave no real power to the local residents, no guarantees to the natives of their civil rights or land titles, and was to be imposed on the populace by troops. The local people strongly objected to the arbitrary seizure of their land and homes and the fact that they had not been consulted on the transfer. A, a quick side note here for those of you who are following with uh, with Prison of Grass, if there is anyone. At this point, uh, Howard Adams portrays the Red River resistance as, as part of a civil war between uh, two competing economic systems, uh, feudalism as represented by the Hudson's Bay Company and capitalism as represented by uh, the Canadian state and the Canadian business leaders. Um, just to quibble a little bit, I've been describing the Hudson's Bay Company as a capitalist enterprise or a proto-capitalist enterprise, part of like the early imperial like mercantile system, and capitalism developed out of that. Mercantilism was like a, a bridge between feudalism and capitalism. It's a proto-capitalism. And the Hudson's Bay Company is an expression of that. Uh, in the 200 years since the Hudson's Bay Company was founded to the 1870s, uh, the HBC is taking on more and more capitalistic traits. 
Um, there isn't like a clean break between feudalism and capitalism, and especially not in England, where the HBC head offices and upper management were located. You can think of it more so as like two competing forms of how capitalism was going to manifest or continue doing business in Canada, essentially. So I would agree with Howard Adams that the HBC does have uh, feudal characteristics only because uh, capitalism itself has feudal characteristics uh, and still does. Uh, I might have mentioned it already in the last episode, but the point of the HBC was to make money for for a few British guys from aristocratic families in the 1600s. Can, the Canadian industrial economy in the 1800s was uh, doing the exact same thing. Uh, these people are pretty much exactly the same. Uh, Canadian, British, feudalists, capitalists. Uh, the early capitalists were just the old feudalists. It's the same families. They're still connected, if not through blood, but through uh, culture and uh, social connections. Just on a very, very basic level, think of the HBC and the Canadian business leaders as examples of capitalism in, in different forms. The Canadian state representing a more industrialized form of capital in North America. I guess I see the HBC as essentially a a resource extraction business, kind of the same as like a modern mining or like logging company. We have a lot of those in Canada. After the end of their monopoly, the HBC got out of the fur trading business explicitly. They opened a bunch of department stores. They got into the department store business. There's not a lot of department stores anymore. There's not a lot of companies operating department stores. So they got out of the department store business and uh, they still own a lot of real estate. They still say on their website that they operate at the intersection of uh, real estate and retail. That's some corporate intersectionality for you there. Uh, real estate's still profitable, so they're still in the real estate business. As are the majority of companies that still operate physical locations. That is, if they own the location. That goes for nonprofits too. I worked 14 years for a nonprofit that owned a lot of uh, real estate. If you're owning a physical location, you are de facto in the real estate business. Your business is real estate. That goes for a lot of local small businesses and farmers out there too, even the ethical ones. It's no accident that uh, the story of the Red River resistance and the story of the clearing of the plains in general is a story about real estate and the HBC being the largest uh, holder of real estate in the land. And then when Canada's takes possession of the land, what do they do? They resurvey it so that they can uh, own the real estate and then disperse it to people and companies that are loyal to it, Canada. It didn't matter to the HBC, and it doesn't matter to Canada whether there's a local population there uh, that has a claim to the land and is uh, currently using it. I mean, Winnipeg was founded by land speculators, and uh, it's still run by land speculators. Like, nothing has changed in the last 150 years, and it uh, probably won't anytime soon. But uh, uh, the Hudson's Bay Company is just a good example of how this process works and what the real business uh, is and has been all along. But by the mid-1800s, the HBC is still in the resource extraction business, and it is a business. It is a corporate monopoly. It is There is a feudal aspect in that they are um, governing land on behalf of the British crown, but they're governing land as a corporation, as a business, uh, as a corporate monopoly. And then when the HBC monopoly ended, the British crown gave the keys to the Northwest to the new Canadian state to essentially do the same thing, to manage the former HBC lands on behalf of the British crown. So there's not much of a difference there either. So you basically go from 
a corporate monopoly under HBC to a state monopoly under Canada. But the name of the game is the same. It's just real estate. And that's what's uh, what's driving the conflict in, in Red River to a large extent. So like, what are some of the other factors leading up to the Red River resistance? You have the transfer of ownership, quote-unquote ownership of Rupert's Land being decided by the British Crown. Rupert's Land is being transferred from the Hudson's Bay Company to the new baby state of Canada that is now going to act as a gigantic uh, real estate brokerage firm in the Northwest and starting in the Red River. Uh, Throwing a big wrench into this uh, very neat and tidy and mutually beneficial sort of uh, uh, plan are the existing inhabitants of Red River who have farms, they have businesses, they uh, are running the economy, they are semi-autonomous, they're setting up their own uh, sort of self-government, their own uh, public institutions. They're managing their own affairs, and they would like to have uh, a say in the government of their own territory. Uh, And this wasn't really uh, in the cards. Neither the HBC nor Canada really had any... Uh, interest in uh, working with the local population to uh, have them uh, govern their own affairs. As we talked about in the previous episode, the HPC was explicitly punitive towards the indigenous and Métis inhabitants of Red River after the Battle of Seven Oaks. HPC took as much revenge as possible for that. The Northwest Company men, uh, led by Cuthbert Grant, uh, who were uh, indigenous and Métis, uh, the so-called country-born, they killed the HPC governor, Robert Semple. The HPC isn't going to be looking too kindly on that. And so after the Battle of Seven Oaks, the British government decides to mandate the folding of the Northwest Company into the Hudson's Bay Company, and the HPC uh, inherits uh, all these uh, Métis and Indigenous uh, employees from the Northwest Company. That's when the HPC um, starts restricting retirement benefits to their, quote, country-born employees. And we talked about that in the last episode. And as I said, uh, that can be seen as an explicitly uh, racist land control policy, sort of the first officially explicitly racist land control policy uh, on the Canadian Plains. That was a factor uh, leading up to the resistance. Uh, As part of like the crackdown after the Battle of Seven Oaks, there was continued price gouging and punishment for free trading during the remaining monopoly years. Uh, The HPC would go around and confiscate furs from people, confiscating personal gifts of furs and furs kept for for personal use. The giving of furs as gifts between people was illegal. It's important to note that this persecution by the HPC towards Red River inhabitants uh, wasn't restricted just to Indigenous uh, Métis people. It was applied across the board. This type of persecution was applied to people of European descent as well. So this uh, shared sense of uh, persecution, oppression, uh, suffering, uh, injustice, uh, led inhabitants of Red River, regardless of ethnic origin, to become aware of their shared circumstances. It created a a bond of uh, solidarity between them. And so they started working together. They started banding together to collectively uh, resist the punitive uh, actions of the Hudson's Bay Company. So during the Monopoly period, mixed-race people, that is Métis, and other mixed uh, European indigenous people uh, made up uh, two-thirds of the population of the Northwest. That's not just the Red River 
colony, but also the entire uh, Northwest, uh, Rupert's Land, essentially. Uh, the Métis were based in the Red River Colony. They were the most populous group in the Red River Colony, and they also controlled uh, trade, especially the bison economy in the Red River. So as a result, they were the group that was most represented uh, in the resistance and had the largest role in leading it. Uh, but it's important to note that the Red River res resistance was a multiracial uh, resistance. So as the monopoly period sort of like petered out, the HBC couldn't control their territory, the Red River population and and especially the Métis uh, were able to exert themselves more and more. Uh, the Hudson's Bay Company was eventually forced to grant that the Métis could uh, do what they wanted. And that was a major factor in the complete breakdown of the of the monopoly. Uh, one of the major events leading to this was uh, in 1849, the HBC charged a young Métis trader, Guillaume Sayer, and three others with trafficking furs without HBC permission. Trafficking in this case meaning just either like giving a gift of furs or uh, selling them outside, uh, not selling them to the local HBC factor, basically. So Guillaume Sayer was arrested, convicted, and imprisoned. Over 300 armed Métis rallied outside the courthouse, and they were led by Louis Uriel Sr., uh, who is the father of Louis Uriel Jr., the more famous Louis Riel. We'll get to him later. Uh, so over 300 armed Métis were organized and rallied at the courthouse in Red River, demanding that the prisoners be released. Uh, although all four men were convicted by the jury, they were all let off with a warning and allowed to go free. Um, if the Métis hadn't rallied, they probably would have been imprisoned and their punishments would have been uh, a lot harsher. So this, this was a victory for the movement for self-government in, in Red River and especially for the Métis national movement. So from that point forward until the end of the monopoly period, uh, the HBC power was effectively broken by the Métis at that point. And the uh, Red River people were allowed to trade freely and they conducted their own business how they wished without HBC interference from that point on. So the, uh, the monopoly was uh, essentially broken at that point. And a state of de facto autonomy existed for the Red River uh, up until the HBC uh, sold the entirety of their holdings of the Northwest to the new Canadian state in 1869. So that's the that's the background there leading up to the resistance. You have the Métis in charge of themselves and the people of the Red River conducting their own their own business. The monopoly is is broken practically in Red River. The only thing left was to uh, sign the papers over in London. So instead of the British Crown. Um, granting independence or autonomy or self-government to the Northwest or the Métis people. They kept it in-house, they kept it within the empire, so they decided the Northwest was going to be uh, managed by the new Canadian state now instead of the Hudson's Bay Company. Uh, so they, uh, the Hudson's Bay Company slunk away, they became uh, just another just another company, the Walmart of the North. Uh, still very powerful, but uh, not handling the uh, government duties uh, anymore. So the new Canadian state comes in. Uh, they're just as imperialist in mindset as uh, Canada's big brother to the south, the United States. They were just as dedicated participants in the same capitalist economic system. And they were still explicitly part of the British Empire. The new Canadian state didn't break off from the British Empire like the Americans did. They were just incorporated basically to uh, manage the economy and the land of the British-held territory in North America on behalf of the British Empire. So they had to expand out west. They had sort of, uh, you know, what in America the imperialist uh, drive was expressed in the 
um, the Manifest Destiny doctrine. Uh, the Canadians didn't really need that. They just knew that they were part of the British Empire, and and the British Empire was the best thing ever in the history of the world, and being part of the British Empire uh, made you lots of money. So the best thing that you could possibly do is to expand that empire. A quick note here on the Catholic Church and the Doctrine of Discovery. It should be abolished or repealed as quickly as possible. It's done irreparable harm to indigenous people, especially in South America. That said, for the purposes of our story, Clearing the Plains and the Red River Resistance, I don't think it plays so much of a role here as uh, some are making it out to be at the moment. Uh, It's sort of in the news with the Pope's uh, recent visit to Canada to apologize for the residential schools. Yes, it it is a precedent for American and Canadian and British expansion, uh, but mostly it had to do with South America, Spain and Portugal at the beginning of the 16th century. The Catholic Church basically acting as uh, a world court uh, mediating a dispute between uh, two squabbling factions of uh, early modern Christian colonial empire. The Pope drawing an imaginary line through South America and saying, Spain, you get everything on this side. Portugal, you get everything on that side. Um, The Brits, Americans, and later Canadians would, would cite this as like a legal permission and spiritual justification for their westward expansion and the inevitable genocides that would uh, accompany this. I think for the purposes of clearing the plains, though, the most relevant analog are the Scottish Highland Clearances, which we're familiar with from uh, a couple episodes ago. This only took place a couple generations before the events of the Red River Resistance, and the original Selkirk settlers were refugees from the Highland Clearances. So the people in Red River would have been like very aware of the similarity between these two events. That's, uh, that's a little bit closer to home, Uh, The Brits didn't need the Doctrine of Discovery to do the Highland Clearances. The process is the same, it's just being applied to Red River now. You're just clearing out the peasants so that the lords can make themselves over as capitalists. There's a jargon term for this, it's called primitive accumulation, which basically means that uh, land has to be stolen before it can be owned. It needs to be transferred from the commons to private ownership. And that is an inherently violent process. That's it. What's similar to the Doctrine of Discovery, though, is that the uh, legal justification comes in afterwards. It's post hoc. The colonialism was going to happen anyway. You just need the Pope to rubber stamp it, or you need uh, the British Parliament to rubber stamp it. That's all. I'm not trying to let the Catholic Church off the hook or anything. They're going to play a major role later on in clearing the plains. Uh, We just haven't really gotten to it yet. And keep in mind that the Métis themselves are Catholic. Uh, There are representatives of the Catholic Church uh, in Red River at this time, and they are playing a role. We will get to them yet, uh, likely in the next episode. In the meantime, we're still talking about Canadian imperial expansion. So the Canadian business leaders got right to work right away. Uh, They had to uh, assert authority over the Northwest as quickly as possible, basically so that the Americans... Uh, wouldn't be able to get it. Uh, the Americans would have been very happy to a- annex the Northwest, starting with the Red River Colony. Many Red River inhabitants had close relationships with the American side and were favorable to uh, deepening those relationships uh, with the U.S. in some capacity. But that said, um, most people in Red River weren't really against being integrated within the Canadian state. That's probably the 
most important point here is uh, they weren't really against uh, being integrated into Canada. Uh, what they wanted was to make sure that that their homesteads, their farms, their businesses, their culture, their uh, self-government would all be protected and ensured when they were integrated into the, into the Canadian state. That was all that they wanted, really. Uh, Canada, on the other hand, saw the Northwest as a vast new colony, which they could fill with loyal settlers who would provide a more a more local market uh, as opposed to Britain. Keep in mind, Canada's not exporting too much to the United States. The United States has their own domestic market, but Canada doesn't really yet, not to the same extent. They have to create one first, and colonizing the West is part of that process. But in the meantime, they're still part of the British Empire and part of the old mercantile economic system that's still hanging on at this point is you're trading back to the British Empire. You're not freely trading across borders. That's why Métis free traders and their ox cart routes down to St. Paul and the Mississippi River uh, can undercut them. And they can bring back goods and offer them at more competitive prices than the HBC can or that the new Canadian state could. Because it takes longer to transport goods from Ontario to Red River uh, than it does uh, from the U.S. to Red River. That's why Canada is in such a hurry to get their transcontinental uh, railroad built. Uh, they're trying to close the gap in that uh, transportation time. So just like the old HBC monopoly, the Canadian economy is still tethered to the British Empire. And that's not the most uh, efficient system at the moment. And the Métis can undercut them. That's why this Canadian national capitalism, it has to be imposed like the former HBC monopoly uh, from the outside on the local populace. So once Canada is taking control of the land and they begin to fill it with loyal settlers, that those settlers will become the market for the commodities produced by the industrialists in eastern Canada. And in return, these farmer settlers would send grain back to feed the eastern population centers and the land would provide the raw materials needed to produce the commodities that would then be sold back to the Western settlers. So the Canadian business leaders, this is how they're going to make their money, and they're going to handpick the people who are going to administer this new national system. So to get the money taps flowing, they got to get out to the Northwest as quickly as possible. They knew that the U.S. had eyes on the Northwest, and they knew that the Métis had ties to the U.S. through their trade route from Red River to St. Paul. So even prior to the official acquisition of the Northwest, Canada was already putting its annexation plans into motion. It was nearing completion of the road connecting Lake Superior to Red River. It was already planning the railway that would connect uh, the Northwest to Eastern Canada. And this railway would facilitate the speedy movement of settlers and commodities. Uh, top HBC officials were already converting their HBC shares into uh, railway stock. Uh, like the treaties with the Plains First Nations to come, the actual transfer of the land had already been completed. Uh, it had been completed in London prior to any paperwork being signed with the local inhabitants. Uh, the local populations of the region had no say in any of this. They were completely left out. They didn't factor into the equation. Who knows if anyone even thought to ask them. So the spontaneous self-organization of the Red River people threw a major wrench into these plans. Uh, and the swift elimination of any form of self-government of the Northwest was of the utmost importance to the Canadian government and business leaders. So it was at this point, I think we talked about in the previous chapter, that uh, migrating Canadians uh, weren't too keen on migrating to the West and to the Plains uh, before this point. Uh, the weather was bad. There were uh, not white people there <laughs> that they uh, didn't really... Uh, want to integrate with. I guess those are the two factors. 
So there was some settlement from like Brits and Anglo Canadians and like and French Canadians as well, but there wasn't uh, the industrial scale sort of uh, immigration that that started to happen uh, at this point. So knowing that the monopoly is coming to an end and that Canada is about to take control of the Northwest, uh, then we have the white Anglo Protestants uh, coming in from from Ontario. You have the uh, the entrepreneurs, the land speculators, fortune seekers, opportunists, and outright grifters. Uh, they begin begin to flood the Red River region. I'm sure some of them were also nice people. If you're listening to this, you might even be related to some of them. Uh, quote from the Canadian Encyclopedia now. Uh, During the lengthy negotiations to transfer sovereignty of the territory to Canada, Protestant settlers from the East moved into the colony. Their obtrusive, aggressive ways led the Roman Catholic Métis to want to preserve their religion, land rights, and culture. Neither the British nor the Canadian government had any appreciation for the Métis people. No efforts were made to ease their fears. The transfer of Rupert's land was negotiated as if no one was there. So that's the Canadian encyclopedia saying this, sort of like the... uh, the Canadian, uh, the Canadian party line, what we're meant to think about Canada. It's, it's not controversial to say that uh, the Métis and the Red River, other Red River inhabitants were completely left out of this process. So no efforts were made to stem the influx of Easterners who are loyal to Britain and the Canadian state, who had very little regard for the existing Red River population, and they ha- especially had very little regard for the Indigenous and mixed-race people. Among these new settlers, uh, the most rabidly pro-Canadian, pro-British pro-empire, pro-expansionist, pro-protestant, and pro-white faction among them were the Orangemen. You might be familiar with the Orangemen from uh, a little place called Ireland, uh, where they still exist, unfortunately. These are militant British uh, loyalists. They are against Irish republicanism. They're against Catholics. They're against non-British people heavily involved in business and political networking through their uh, system of lodges that they established. But they established themselves here in Canada in the 1830s. They got to work promoting British Protestant authority uh, immediately. They're involved in 29 riots in Toronto alone between the 1830s and the 1860s, uh, most of them around elections, and they had political implications. Toronto developed the nickname uh, Little Belfast for these reasons. And every Toronto mayor in the 20th century was an Orangeman, I think, up till uh, 1972. That was the last one. Uh, four Canadian prime ministers have been Orangemen, including John A. Macdonald. I think the last one was John Diefenbaker. So, of course, when Canada's coming west, the Orangemen are going to be heavily in- involved in the settlement of the Plains, starting with Red River. So if Canada's coming west, the Orangemen are coming with them. And they're coming from uh, Ontario, where they just cut their teeth uh, and developed some uh, military experience through fighting a group called the Fenians, uh, which were a pro-Irish Republican sort of insurgent faction in North America. It's very interesting. You can look up the Fenians. The Fenians were staging attacks into Canada from the US and, and the Canadian militia, which was heavily supported by and contained many members of the Orange Order, was mustered to fight them off. So you have a lot of these people coming straight from putting down an anti-colonial insurgency in eastern Canada, coming over to Red River where they're thinking their job is to do the same here. I don't think it's uh, unreasonable to call them like a white supremacist shock troops. Like, uh, yeah, these people are deranged. They're proto-fascists. 
they're ultra conservative Anglo Protestants, virulently anti Catholic, virulently pro British, pro Empire, extremely racist, and they set up like little uh, little clubs, little lodges, uh, all throughout Canada. Wherever Canada went, there were little Orangemen clubs. There were Orangemen clubs here in Manitoba, in Winnipeg. The uh, Orange Orders Hall was called the Thomas Scott Memorial Hall. Uh, the building still exists. You can go see it. There are still Orangemen around, but they would likely be quite elderly. Uh, it didn't really translate through the second half of the 20th century. So there aren't a lot of or- young Orangemen around, but you can imagine who their children and grandchildren would be. But you can see like the thread of this like virulent uh, uh, ultra-conservatism sort of has like morphed more into like the Freedom Rally kind of kind of folks. Uh, these people didn't come out of nowhere. This is, they were here right from the beginning of the birth of Canada. Um, so in the same way that Trump or QAnon or Alex Jones or Reddit, they didn't make up the MAGA movement uh, or the people in it. Uh, there's a historical thread that goes back, you know, generations, centuries, like Max Bernier and the People's Party and uh, our Freedom Convoy, and anti-vax and anti-lockdown folks didn't just get spawned uh, out of the reaction to uh, COVID restrictions. There is a historical thread here, and uh, the Orange Order plays a major role in that, in Canada especially. Uh, look up any sort of like list of um, prominent politicians and business leaders in your area, and there's a good chance that the older ones would have been Orangemen. If you know that, it explains a lot. It's just an ultra-reactionary business and political networking group. It just happens that a lot of uh, powerful Brits and Canadians were a part of it for some reason. So they're here to, like, establish a beachhead for Canadian nationalism before the paperwork has been settled. And uh, part of this, like, vanguard coming out uh, were surveyors, land surveyors. Uh, In August 1869, Métis concerns were made worse. The Canadian government attempted to resurvey uh, the settlement's river lot farms. These were typically long, narrow lots fronting the local rivers. Uh, they had been laid out according to the seigneurial system of New France. You can still see a lot of these original river lots. For instance, check on Google Maps. Uh, you can see these uh, river lot system in, in some cases still in existence. Uh, the Canadian government preferred square lots. I guess that was the British system. And the square lots limited access to river water. This was a major deal because the rivers were the highways of the plains. Uh, you needed access to the river. And this grid system is what we still have on the prairies today. Square sections, one mile across. Your mile roads, that's the grid system. That's the surveying system. So this is a problem for the Métis. Well, one, because, you know, they didn't have clear title to their land. They were they were living in a governmental gray zone. They had a lot of, like, local autonomy but uh there was no like present authority to process and register land titles so they owned their land they were occupying it they were farming it they were using it or in every uh practical and realistic uh way they owned their land but since canada coming in hadn't surveyed it yet uh they legally in in canada's eyes didn't own it ottawa had indicated that they did intend to respect Métis rights to their land, but it was never written down and they gave no concrete assurances that existing property rights would be respected. Uh, The Métis therefore rightly feared the loss of their farms. Furthermore, exacerbating all this, a guy named William McDougall, a descendant of pro-British former American loyalists and a well-known Canadian expansionist, 
was appointed as the first Canadian uh, governor of the Northwest. As a side note, McDougall was the guy who first introduced the resolution that led to the government's purchase of Rupert's Land. And he was also present in London to negotiate the acquisition of Rupert's Land in 1868. He had a substantial personal stake in this transaction. And of course, if you're reading about this, the Métis and the Red River inhabitants would be reading about all this in the newspaper. They'd be reading about themselves secondhand. No one's consulting them on this. Uh, Of course, this would fuel tension and fears among the Métis. McDougall previously was involved in the dispossession of the indigenous inhabitants of Manitoulin Island, as another side note, in uh, Lake Huron. So he's, uh, he's got experience with this. All these Canadian officials coming through have a lot of experience with dispossession already and fighting uh, anti-colonial insurgents. This is by design. That, this is the reason these people are picked. Uh, and so this Manitoulin Island example is, is very interesting in that like, he, uh, he forced through the enforcement of a treaty that had been rejected by the existing inhabitants of Manitoulin Island. Uh, and Manitoulin Island remains technically unseated today, 150 years later. So this is the same uh, process that they're going to go through, trying to push through here in, in Red River, and later with the treaty process across the plains. So these surveyors are coming out on October 11th, 1869. Uh, this is sort of like the big kickoff uh, to the resistance here. Uh, a survey party led by Captain Adam Webb, Keep in mind, these surveyors coming out are all are Canadian militia officers. So this is a military presence uh, coming out. So you have Canadian militia surveyor Captain Adam Webb coming out, and he began to survey the property of uh, Andre Nolt, a Métis farmer. Uh, Nolt see this, sees this guy and his survey team like setting up on his land without notification or permission. Uh, he was quite alarmed, as you can imagine he would be. Uh, Nolt protested the intrusion and called his cousin Louis Riel. This is the Louis Riel Jr. now. So uh, Louis Riel uh, gathers uh, a dozen Métis, shows up at uh, Nolt's farm, and collectively uh, they confront the surveying team. Uh, Riel reportedly stood on the surveying chain demanding that Webb and his men stop the survey. Uh, The surveyors then withdrew. Uh, you can imagine how that sort of confrontation would have went. It would have been highly dramatic. Uh, news would have uh, gone back to Eastern Canada in short order. And you can imagine how these events would have been interpreted in both Ontario and Quebec. And of course, uh, the mostly Francophone uh, Quebec uh, would have been largely supportive of the Métis. And the largely Anglophone uh, British Ontario uh, they would have come down hard on the pro-Canada side, on the anti-Métis side. Indeed, the uh, Red River resistance would remain an extremely polarizing issue for Ontario and Quebec. It caused a lot of tension out there, and that tension would continue to mount throughout these events and uh, even afterwards. There's a historical plaque that commemorates this chain-stepping event at the St. Norbert Provincial Heritage Park. There's a couple of buildings from that period on site, and there's a nice little like walking area. That's not the site where this event actually took place, uh, but it does have some history on it. So uh, after this incident, this incident really like cements Louis Riel as a prominent leader and spokesman for the Métis. Uh, he gained a lot of uh, local fame and admiration as the man who had stared down Canada and won. So through this action, uh, he gathered a lot of support from both the Francophone and Anglophone uh, communities in Red River, and he was quite aware that uh, the Métis had to work 
with the more reticent and less organized Anglophones uh, to satisfy their collective grievances. So, as you can probably guess, like Canada was never going to uh, reconsider surveying this territory. They weren't going to be dissuaded from the plan. The plan had already been decided, regardless of what the local inhabitants had to say. That's the whole idea. This was already a, fa a fait accompli. They hadn't even officially taken possession of the land yet. This was going to happen soon, though, in sort of a comical way. On October 30th, 1869, uh, McDougal, the appointed governor, and his entourage, which included a complete government-in-waiting, uh, and four of his nine children entered the Northwest Territory uh, via the United States at Pembina. Yeah, his convoy was quickly turned back by the National Committee of the Métis of Red River, and McDougal was forced to return uh, back over the border. From Prison of Grass, uh, the newly appointed governor, William McDougal, who expected personal wealth from the transfer, saw himself in the traditional role of a British governor riding into a colony with all the pomp and ceremony of a nabob while the natives showed their humility and subservience. It must have been a shock to McDougal when he was met outside the colony by Ambrose Lapine, a native warrior with a gun in his hand and an order to stay out of Red River. Of course, it wasn't just Ambrose Lapine. It was a sizable force. Uh, Ambrose Lapine would, is going to play uh, some role in, the, in subsequent events as sort of the, uh, the military leader or uh, defense minister of the Red River Colony, I guess you could say. So McDougal was forced to retreat back to the American side of the border. Uh, while there, he drew up a proclamation condemning both the Métis and the HBC chief factor William McTavish. And on the night of November 30th, he snuck back across the international boundary at the 49th parallel and nailed his document to a fence post. So as far as he and the Canadian state were concerned, uh, he had officially taken control of the Northwest. It is kind of funny that uh, scribbling something on the back of a napkin and stapling it to a fence post is uh, proof of ownership in the eyes of Canada in this case, but actually uh, occupying land and farms and being present and using the land isn't a valid proof of ownership if you're Métis. So McDougall's uh, piece of paper tacked to a fence post... That was all the Canadian government needed for them to say that they had officially taken possession of the Northwest. So McDougall's trying to govern the colony now remotely from the American side of the border. Uh, he appointed uh, Colonel J.S. Dennis, another Canadian militia officer and land surveyor, as uh, lieutenant governor and, quote, preserver of the peace in the Northwest Territory. Dennis is another Orangeman kind of guy who is coming from uh, fighting the Fenians in Ontario. So like Orangeman militia surveyor guys. These are the guys that the, they really like that, are, that they're sending out here. Uh, Dennis had played a previous role in a botched attack at Fort Erie uh, on the Fenians. Uh, also uh, self-appointed uh, fancy lads who consider themselves to be like military tactical geniuses are a bit of a theme here. Uh, Dennis is definitely one of these guys. These are militia officers. These aren't like professional soldiers. They're professionals, land and business owners who uh, are LARPing as the Duke of Wellington. And Dennis himself is famous for botching an attack uh, during the Fenian raids. They're just kind of like bumbling their way through here. Mr. Colonel Dennis here, the Manitoba His Historical Society says, in, in 1871, he became Canada's first surveyor general and head of the Dominion Lands Branch. And in 1878, 
Uh, he was deputy minister of the interior under uh, Sir John A. Macdonald. He succeeded in establishing the 160-acre unit for homesteads rather than the 80-acre unit preferred by Macdonald. So you 160-acre uh, uh, homestead aficionados, uh, you can thank him for that. But it also establishes the theme of these like bumbling nincompoops uh, just like uh, failing their way up the chain <laughs> through all these events. I mean, it sucks and is tragic because they're hurting ordinary people through doing like historically uh, bad things, but is also uh, comical at the same time. I mean, first is tragedy, then is farce, I guess. I think we're living in the, in the farce portion of uh, history at this point. Uh, from Prison of Grass. He authorized, that is McDougal, authorized this preserver of the peace to attack Métis, to fire on them, to drive them by force from their homes and fortified places, and to seize all the flocks, cattle, horses, sleighs, and other Métis vehicles. Under Dennis's explicit sanction, a small group of extremist orangemen from Ontario engaged in clandestine and undemocratic activities against the Métis. They, the Orangemen that is, were interested in the colony partly because of the fortunes they expected to make when Ottawa took over. And you should note, these fortunes were that they were expecting, uh, these were the, uh, the land, farms, and businesses of the Métis, after they had done the work of dispossessing the Métis and driving them out. It's not spoilers to say that uh, they were successful in doing this. This is how the process of stealing land works, or settler colonialism, if you prefer. Some guy from Ontario shows up and nails a napkin to a fence post. Then a Canadian military officer arrives on your farm without permission in order to resurvey it. Uh, they draw a fake line through your river lot, and then uh, all of a sudden uh, you, your lot doesn't exist anymore. It's a square now, and they sold it to somebody else. Probably a friend of theirs, who's also an orangeman. Or maybe a group of Germans from Russia, who think that you deserve to have your land stolen because you're a member of an inferior race or an inferior religion, or an inferior denomination of the same religion. Welcome to Canada. You don't have to be particularly uh, clever to figure out that the way to rectify a situation with stolen land is to return the land. Um, apologies from prime ministers and popes and land acknowledgements at uh, Winnipeg Jets games, or your favorite local ethical small businesses statement of values uh they are something uh in that they are a thing that exists uh but it's not returning the land uh we can certainly say that and in my experience uh nobody who's been the beneficiary of several generations of intergenerational wealth derived from stolen land uh, ever uh volunteers to give it up and uh, it doesn't matter if your grandpa worked hard to get it. I'm sure your grandpa was a lovely person, but everybody's grandpa worked hard. And while we're on the topic, don't worry, we're not talking about taking away your modest fixer-upper house uh, that you need to live in and giving it to poor people. Uh, we're talking about taking away your mortgage so that you can afford to keep your house, say, if you lose your job or... Uh, if interest rates uh, get so high that you can't afford to pay your bills. We're talking about giving everyone a safe, secure place to live their lives in dignity. We're basically talking about sharing productive land and capital. Those things don't get shared. If you want land back, you will have to fight them for it. In some way, shape, or form. 
and that means collective organizing in every workplace and community. Manitoba has a lot of examples of this, and the Red River Resistance is just one of them. Uh, But that's another topic altogether. Probably best left to somebody else. But uh, getting back to our story here, now we get like all sorts of colorful characters in on the Canadian side of the story here. Um, Just kind of like incredible people. The leading spokesman for the Orangemen in Red River was, uh, I'd say, like noted grifter, charlatan and fake doctor J.C. Schultz. Just a complete uh, obvious fraud. Uh, from the Manitoba Historical Society. He claimed to have attended Oberlin College as well as Victoria University, Coburg, and to have graduated from Queen's University, Kingston. Oberlin has no record of his attendance. He attended one term at Victoria and two terms at Queen's, but received no degree. Thus, there is no evidence of his having received a medical degree or having been licensed by Victoria University, as he later claimed. In 1861, he went to Fort Garry to visit his half-brother, Henry McKenney, great name Henry McKenney. He got out here on a family vacation, a family trip. He was scouting out the land to see if he could set up his like fake doctor business out here, uh, see what kind of grift he could get up to. Soon after his arrival on this like uh, family vacation thing, uh, he advertised in the Norwester, that is the local newspaper, as a physician and surgeon. Schultz was said to be the first doctor in the community to undertake major surgery in his attempt to save the life of John H. Sutherland. Uh... That is, attempt to save the life of John H. Sutherland. He wasn't successful. Fake doctor fails at life-saving surgery, but first one to attempt it in the colony. Um, Lady Aberdeen, the wife of the Canadian Governor General, recorded during a visit to Winnipeg in 1895 that Schultz and his wife had been intensely unpopular. And Sheriff Colin Ingster, on reading the complimentary description on Schultz's tombstone, remarked, What a pity we knew him. So this, like, incredibly stupid, fraudulent... You know, racist shock troop orangeman kind of guy <laughs> comes in, uh, attempts surgery, kills a guy. And I know this is skipping ahead a little bit, but uh, we'll find out soon enough anyway. He basically tries to like incite a uh, really unpopular coup against the provisional government, uh, really escalates uh, tensions and violence in this whole colony. He starts a pro Canadian nationalist political party called the Canadian Party and a leading spokesman for the Canada First movement. He's a 19th century Tamara Lich. And the only consequences he suffers from all this grifting and uh, inciting all this insanity is that he, uh, he was uh, disliked at dinner parties. So like the whole failing upwards thing, this is just really, really incredible. But it is a good little like object lesson in showing uh, who the type of people are who benefit uh, from our like current economic and national system as it is uh, currently constituted. The Canada First Movement, again, a popular slogan among the Freedom Convoy folks. You know, Trump didn't make up the uh, America First slogan either. Again, these aren't new movements and these aren't new slogans and these aren't new attitudes. Canada First is at least as old as Canada itself. And these attitudes go back to time immemorial. Like, wherever there's a a class hierarchy, as in, like, a very small group of people who uh, dominate a very large group of people. Okay, now we're going to get to a guy named Thomas Scott. And if uh, Schultz is a 19th century Tamara Lich or Pat King, then Scott is a, I don't know, I guess like a 19th century uh, 4chan poster. Uh, If he just uh, went around shouting uh, all his posts out in public, I'd I can only speculate, uh, but he just can't help himself. 
He gets himself killed for being a racist troll, basically. He actually stared into the face of God and walked backwards into hell. Basically a, an easily manipulated, belligerent doofus. He'd definitely be an Alex Jones guy, I think. He would think that having to show a proof of vaccination to get into a bar is the same level of persecution as the literal Holocaust, a historical event that he himself is somewhat skeptical about. A weird Canadian MAGA guy for sure. One of the Freedom Convoy guys uh, that's just driving a pickup, like a Ford Explorer. He's not even rolling coal. He just has a Blue Lives Matter bumper sticker, something like that. He's one of those guys. A guy who wouldn't even be cool among uh, his own group of uh, volatile weirdos. But in the 19th century, that just means you're a principal agitator for the Orangemen. So that's Thomas Scott, an Irish-born insurgent laborer. He was a member of a working crew, working for surveyor John Snow, constructing Dawson Road, that is, uh, the road linking Lake of the Woods to Upper Fort Gary. In 1869, Scott and other workers discovered that Snow had been underpaying them. The workers dragged Snow out to a nearby river and threatened to drown him. In November, Scott was arrested, charged with assault, fined four pounds, and, and fired. Uh, you could assume that they had to wait till they had actually finished building the road to Fort Gary before uh, Scott could get arrested. So, like, Irish-born insurgent laborer. There's a lot going on here. And Orangeman. He's a laborer. He's not a business leader. He's a, he's a working man, but likely an Anglo-Protestant Irish uh, working person. Uh, hence the, uh, the whole Orangeman thing. But he's not a leader of the Orangemen in Red River. He is more of a hanger-on, a joiner. He fell for the grift and he took the bait. He's the kind of guy who, who sees in this Canada First movement and the Orangemen as a way to uh, further his station in life, a way to improve his prospects. Uh, a fortune seeker who's hitched his wagon to the Canada train and uh, the fortune he's hoping to receive uh, is going to come from the inhabitants of the Red River Valley. Uh, he's going to make his fortune through taking uh, the Métis property after it's been resurveyed. These are the people who are, who are on the lower rung of the socioeconomic ladder themselves and see that people on the religious racial axis uh, below them have things that uh, they think that they deserve uh, in their minds anyway. So while they're kicking down at people who they perceive to be uh, inferior below them on the ladder, uh, they just end up kicking the ladder out from beneath their own feet. So when you get a bunch of these uh, aggrieved kind of guys together all uh, concentrated in one place, it's easy for uh, more unscrupulous characters like J.C. Schultz to whip them up into a frenzy. Then people like Scott and his uh, compatriots can go out and do all the dirty work while uh, Schultz and his more uh, well-to-do middle-class friends can keep their hands clean. Uh, so, an Irish-born Orangeman laborer would certainly uh, fit this type of profile. Uh, this is an example of the type of people who are coming into Red River at this point. Thomas Scott was not the only one of these guys that were coming in here. There were loads of them. He's just the most prominent one because he's the one who stirred up the most trouble. You kind of get the picture. Working people sort of joining up on these movements that are explicitly kind of like against their own material benefit. As a side note, he was Irish, but he could have been Anglo-Irish, could have been an Anglo-Irish Protestant. So like that would explain his uh, siding with the Canada First folks and, uh, and the Orangemen. 
he was a working man, and ordinarily you'd think that fighting your boss over the issue of unpaid wages would be a worthwhile and uh, noble thing to do. Uh, but he clearly had no concept of class consciousness if or would have even been something that uh, a guy like him would have been aware of at the time. But if he did have such an awareness, uh, you'd hope that he would see his interests as being uh, in common with the Red River people, that they shared a common plight. That's probably a little too much to ask for uh, a guy like uh, Thomas Scott at that period in history. You know, that type of uh, cross-racial working-class solidarity is a tough thing to uh, grow even nowadays. Okay, so what about the HBC, you might be asking? What are what are they dur- doing during all these, uh, these events? Uh, what's their position here? Local HBC officials, they remained officially neutral throughout these events. They would have to. They wouldn't be able to be officially uh, involved, taking one side or another. They're not governing this place anymore. They're kind of just uh, minding the store. But local HBC officials covertly supported the Métis-led resistance. You should note that they... St- they still owned shares in the HBC. The HBC is still trying to do business here, uh, and they still owned land in Red River. They, uh, the local officials, uh, part of the local population, they stood to lose out under Canadian rule, much like the Métis. So from Prison of Grass, the opposing force of the HBC factors hid behind the native forces and concealed their official position. Some Canadian HBC factors, particularly William McTavish, who was also the governor of the local council of Assiniboia, pretended to support the federal government while in fact actively opposing Ottawa. The Métis were also suspicious of the HBC officials, and they're hesitant to ally themselves too closely with them, though they shared some common aims and interests. Both groups operated relatively independently. But uh, HBC chief factor, William McTavish, uh, he was the governor of the Council of Assiniboia, that's the uh, the Selkirk settlement area, basically. Uh, he was also the governor of Rupert's Land. So basically the HBC represented the head HBC representative in the Northwest as a whole. He's got a bunch of different hats here. Um, so he's got his, uh, HBC affiliations. Uh, he wasn't really a politician though. He didn't like politics and he kind of resented, uh, his political appointments. He was hoping to just kind of get through them, uh, do his time and then uh, go back to Scotland when it was over. But and here's uh, here's a critical point. Um, he had a wife. Uh, she was Métis. And McTavish was known to be sympathetic to the Métis cause even before the resistance broke out. So he wasn't too into his political role. And uh, he wasn't personally invested in Canada. In fact, uh, if his personal loyalties uh, landed anywhere, they would be with his wife's family, his in-laws, essentially. But due to his Official roles, obviously, uh, his hands were tied, so he couldn't really do much. So that's what the HBC was doing. Uh, Really not doing too much, being kind of sympathetic to the Métis. Um, The local officials also being landowners there. With the resurveying of the land, they would stand to lose out as well. Uh, But really not being able to take an official position and allowing the Métis to basically be on the front lines of this this whole deal. So HBC Governor McTavish suggested to Louis Riel uh, that the Métis resistance occupy Upper Fort Garry. Uh, the Métis didn't like forcefully occupy it, as um, some official sources claim. The Métis were invited to occupy Upper Fort Garry, uh, and that was the HBC's uh, administrative center in the Northwest. Uh, it was located at the Forks. 
of the Red and Cinnaboyne Rivers. There's a park there now. The uh, One of the gates still exists if you want to go uh, visit it. Uh, so at the same time that this is happening, he indicated to McDougall that Riel had seized the fort on his own without McTavish's knowledge or, or prior consent. Uh, I'm getting this nugget from Prison of Grass as, as well. So this is this is history coming from the Métis side. This wasn't mentioned in on Wikipedia or the Canadian Encyclopedia or the Historical Society website, I don't think. But that's an important detail. Again, that's why when you're talking about history or telling stories that uh, perspective matters. Whose perspective are you taking? Who gets left out of the story? Who's telling the story? Whose story are you telling? So on December 6th, 1869, the Métis resistance took control of Upper Fort Garry. They intended to control the fort and by extension the entire Red River region until the Canadian government agreed to negotiate with them. Uh, Two days later, they issued a declaration of the people of Rupert's Land and the Northwest. Uh, This declaration stated, uh, one, when people have no government, they are free to adopt one form of government in preference to another to give or to refuse allegiance to what is proposed. Two, the HBC having abandoned the people without consent to a foreign power, the people are free to establish a provisional government and hold it to be the only and lawful authority now in existence in Rupert's Land and the Northwest, which claims the obedience and respect of the people. And three, the provisional government would enter into such negotiations with the Canadian government as may be favorable for the good government and prosperity of its people. Uh, that all seems pretty reasonable to me. Like, keep in mind, like, the the Métis, these weren't really, like, uh, backwater people. Like, a lot of them had professional training. Uh, Louis Riel was trained as a priest in Quebec. Uh, a lot of them were were prosperous, well-to-do. They established the Red River Trails to uh, St. Paul. They had experience moving in uh, Canadian and, and white sort of uh, middle-class professional circles. So they knew exactly what was happen- happening to them. And uh, they knew exactly what they were doing with all these actions. Uh, Representatives of the resistance then were summoned to an elected convention later that December. At this convention, a provisional government was proclaimed. uh, The first president being a guy named John Bruce, who is of Scottish indigenous descent. Bruce soon stepped down, uh, citing health reasons, and then was replaced by Riel on December 27th, 1869. So I think that's interesting that Riel wasn't the first president elected to the provisional government. Uh, It was Bruce, uh, a guy of Scottish indigenous descent. So Red River was a multiracial place, and their provisional government reflected that. So in in January 1870, uh, Riel was able to gain the support of most of the Anglophone community in a second convention, and then it was agreed that a provisional government which was representative of all people in Red River, not just the Métis, would be formed. So I'm getting the sense that the first convention was just Métis and other people of mixed Indigenous heritage. They elected John Bruce, then Louis Riel. Then in a second convention, the provisional government was able to gain support of the majority of the Anglo community. And it was agreed that this provisional government, which is representative of all people in Red River, uh, would have the authority to discuss terms of entry into confederation with the Canadian government on behalf of all Red River inhabitants. And it should be noted that uh, all the members of the provisional government were men, so it doesn't look like it was a universal uh, suffrage situation here. But uh, on the whole, more representational than uh, the Canadians coming in, that's for sure. Uh, Here's a quote from Prison of Grass. Keep in mind that the language used was current at the time, Uh, Howard Adams is a Métis person himself. He writes, 
the half-breed, i.e. mixed-race people, were not opposed to joining Confederation, providing that they would be assured of title to their homes and land and given democratic rights. They were, however, concerned about the Ottawa-slash-Bay deal in this regard because negotiations had gone on for several years without a single consultation with local people. So they decided to oppose all attempts by Ottawa to take over their country. So I think that uh, that about sums it up. We're going to leave it here with the establishment of the provisional government, and we'll pick up the rest of the story uh, in the next episode. At least one more episode of this, maybe another. We'll see how it goes. But uh, thanks for listening to this one, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Bye-bye.